You're listening to the Christian Humanist Radio Network, christianhumanist.org. This is the Christian Humanist Podcast, a weekly discussion of theology, philosophy, literature, art, and other things that human beings do well. And now your hosts, David Grubbs, Nathan Gilmore, and Michael Fox. So the same by Alfred Lord Tennyson. The little prophets that an idle king by this still hearth among these barren crags, matched with an aged wife, I meet and dole unequal laws unto a savage race that hoard and sleep and feed and know not me. I cannot rest from travel. I will drink life to the lees. All times I have enjoyed greatly, have suffered greatly both with those that loved me and alone, on shore, and when through scudding drifts the rainy Hyades vexed the dim sea, I am become a name. For always roaming with a hungry heart, much have I seen and known, cities of men and manners, climates, councils, governments, myself not least, but honored of them all, and drunk delight of battle with my peers far on the ringing plains of windy Troy. I am part of all that I have met, yet all experience is an arch where through gleams that untraveled world whose margin fades forever and forever when I move. How dull it is to pause, to make an end, to rust unburnished, not to shine in use, as though to breathe were life. Life piled on life were all too little, and of one to me little remains. Every, but every hour is saved from that eternal silence, something more, a bringer of new things. And vile it were for some three sons to store and hoard myself, and this gray spirit yearning in desire to follow knowledge like a sinking star beyond the utmost bound of human thought. This is my son, my own Telemachus, to whom I leave the scepter and the isle, well loved of me, discerning to fulfill this labor by slow prudence to make mild a rugged people and through soft degrees subdue them to the useful and the good. Most blameless is he, centered in the sphere of common duties, decent not to fail in offices of tenderness and pay meet adoration to my household gods when I'm gone. He works his work, I mine. There lies the port, the vessel puffs her sail, there gloom the dark broad seas. My mariners, souls that have toiled and wrought and thought with me, that ever with a frolic welcome took the thunder and the sunshine and opposed free hearts, free foreheads. You and I are old. Old age hath yet his honor and his toil. Death closes all, but... Something ere the end, some work of noble note may yet be done, not unbecoming men that strove with gods. The lights begin to twinkle from the rocks, the long day wanes, the slow moon climbs, 
the deep moans round with many voices. Come, my friends, tis not too late to seek a newer world. Push off, and sitting well in order, smite the sounding furrows. For my purpose holds to sail beyond the sunset and the baths of all the western stars until I die. It may be that the gulfs will wash us down. It may be that we shall touch the happy isles and see the great Achilles whom we knew. Though much is taken, much abides. And though we are not now that strength which in old days moved earth and heaven, that which we are, we are. One equal temper of heroic hearts, made weak by time and fate, but strong in will to strive, to seek, to find, and not to yield. Welcome all to this week's Christian Humanist Podcast. I'm David Grubbs. I'll be your host this week. With me this week, like with most of the rest of them for all of the years that we've been doing this, is Michael Farmer, Assistant Professor of English at Crown College in St. Bonifacius, Minnesota. How are you, Michael? I'm very tired, David. So if I'm even quieter than normal, that's why. <laughs> even more reticent to answer your questions. How was your Thanksgiving? It was good. You know, uh, you come back from Thanksgiving break even more tired than you left it. Yeah, I. it's never quite long enough. It's just, just long enough to throw you off your stride and not long enough to actually rest. You have to come back and look at their stupid faces again. Right, right. Nathan, Associate Professor of English at Emanuel College in Franklin Springs, Georgia, doesn't have to look at their stupid faces. How are you, Nathan? No, I will have an entirely new set of faces, <laughs> some digital and some otherwise, starting on Wednesday. So Emanuel's got that goofy early schedule. Uh, so I actually filed my end-of-semester fall grades this morning, and I will start up a round of two-week intensive classes on Wednesday, one in person and one online. How was your Thanksgiving? It was good. We took the uh, kids to Myrtle Beach. Uh, Mary nice. discovered that uh, the beach, the oceanfront hotels that are normally, you know, uh, three digits a night, drop down to about 50 bucks a night when it's winter, as it turns out. Uh, nice. So we went there and actually, uh, as she reminded me several times, spent less money per night. Uh, than I did at the Econo Lodge in Sioux Center, Iowa. <laughs> but the accommodations at the Econo Lodge in Sioux Center, Iowa. They were to be commended, to be sure. The view. The odor. <laughs> the whole the ball of wax. The, the waffles were good. They were good waffles. If you find yourself in Sioux Center, I think we can all wholeheartedly recommend the Econo Lodge. We yes, can. yes. Although you will pay more than you will for an oceanfront room at Myrtle Beach in late November. <laughs> well, with that out of the way, this week we're discussing Tennyson's Ulysses. Tennyson as in Alfred Lord, and Ulysses as in the guy who's also called Odysseus. So, usually we begin a conversation like this with some biography, but this time I want to delay that because this poem invites us, nay, demands us to read it in light of other texts and in other contexts. So I'd like to take up these different frames in turn, beginning with the most prominent, which would be Homer. Uh, Odysseus, or Ulysses, is preeminently Homer's character, not Tennyson's. So, Michael, what 
what sticks out to you in this poem as especially in conversation with the Odyssey, its characters and its themes? Well, as you say, um, it comes from Homer. I, and I wonder if maybe the reason he calls him U- Ulysses instead of Odysseus, that's the, that's the Latin name for him as opposed to the Greek name, is to distance himself a little bit from Homer's presentation of the character. Mm. I, don't, I don't know the answer to that question. Um, because the scene we're talking about, the scene that is narrated in this poem, is not present in, in the Odyssey. It takes place after the end of the Odyssey, but it draws back on a passage from Book 11 when Odysseus is in the underworld and he meets Tiresias, the great prophet, whom we all know from uh, uh, from Oedipus Rex. Uh, and Tiresias tells him that yeah, he's probably going to make it back to Ithaca, but bad things are going to happen to him, especially if he and his men can't resist the lure of the cattle of Apollo, which, of course, they do not. Odysseus doesn't eat them, but his men do, and they all die. And so Odysseus, as Tiresias predicts, kind of straggles home alone. But then he says, essentially, that he's not going to have the opportunity to enjoy being at home, and that he's eventually going to have to go out on one last journey. And he, uh, Tiresias says the following. Uh, this is the Stanley Lombardo translation. And death will come to you off the sea, a death so gentle, and carry you off when you are worn out in sleek old age, your people prosperous all around you. So Tennyson is narrating from the Odysseus who is about to set off on that final voyage, uh, which Tiresias really doesn't give us a whole lot of detail about. And to be fair, Neither does Tennyson. We just know that there are new worlds to conquer, uh, and and Odysseus feels this uh, this drive to go conquer them. Now, I'll point out, um, at least according to G.K. Chesterton, Tennyson's got this all wrong. Um, this is from Chesterton's book Heretics. <laughs> he says the greatest tribute to Christianity in the modern world is Tennyson's Ulysses. The poet reads into the story of Ulysses the conception of an incurable desire to wander. But the real Ulysses does not desire to wander at all. He desires to get home. He displays his heroic and unconquerable qualities in resisting the misfortunes which balk him. But that's all. There is no love of adventure for its own sake. That is a Christian product. So if Chesterton's right here, Tennyson really is not engaging with the Odysseus of the Odyssey, but he's he's transplanting some sort of 19th century conception of freedom and restlessness on top of him and i mean chesterton's argument here makes sense i don't know that i'm the perfect person to evaluate it what do you guys think well it's interesting i read that passage from the uh, the odyssey differently uh if he's surrounded by his people and if he's uh dying a gentle death and he dies off from the sea or far from the sea in my translation that i'm looking at it strikes me that that Homer or Tiresias or Homer's Tiresias, let's put it that way, doesn't posit a final journey for him at all. Um, but I mean that his death will come after he has journeyed to his home, not from his home. Um, that's very that's very interesting, and and I, I guess it's probably just a matter of what translation you use, because as I yeah. said, mine, mine says "come to you off the sea," which I guess could mean both of those things. But which yeah, I took yeah, to yeah. mean the, the I, death is coming from the sea. Oh, interesting, interesting. So, yeah, I mean, mine reads, death shall come to thee far from the sea. That's interesting. Hmm. David, what, 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 what's your translation got? Do you have one in front of you? 
Uh, I don't. It's just a shame we don't know anyone who drink, speaks Greek. <laughs> well, my uh, library, unfortunately, is many miles of dry Georgia <laughs> land away, so uh, I don't have the Greek text of Homer in front of me. Would you well, say that it... you have miles to go before you Greek? That's really oh. bad. <laughs> well, well. Um, yeah, so one of our many classicist uh, listeners who knows all of this stuff and has it at their fingertips, um, by all means, write in. I mean, I, I, I think Chesterton's, uh, I, m- my memory is, is uh, of a translation that's pretty close to what you just read, Nathan, that Odysseus is going to die at home, far from water, there will be no drowning, you know, so, so that it's very comforting in a, in a particular kind of way that he can you know, go through the rest of an adventure and, and say, well, at least I don't drown. <laughs> um, yeah, point taken, point taken. I, yeah. I, I wonder, and I, and I also don't have this book in front of me, the listeners, this is the dangers of recording from home instead of from the office. Um, does uh, Virgil ever refer to the death of Odysseus or Ulysses in the Aeneid? I don't think he does. I don't think he does. Um, he certainly c- depicts Odysseus, Ulysses, in um, a different light than Homer does, or at least uh, he 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 plays up some aspects of Odysseus. Um, what what is what is mere laudatory cleverness in Homer is um, is kind of must mustache twirling villainy <laughs> in in Virgil. Um, but I, I, I don't think, I don't, I don't know that we get the end of the Odyssey story in, in Aeneid. No, and my understanding is Homer or the bards we call Homer originally had a third book that, that describes Odysseus's final journey, Mm -hmm. but I don't remember what it's called. And of course, nobody living has ever read it because it's lost. Well, there is um, the telegony. That's what it's called. Yeah, the, there are some kind of remnants of translations of paraphrases or something on that order. Um, you know, there's I, I, one version I read about one one kind of I guess it would be a Homer continuator who has um, an illegitimate son. I think of Circe come look for his dad and accidentally kill him. Um, something something like that. I anyway. Again, this is this is one of those areas where uh, we are we are open to correction and expansion. Um, I mean, just the whole theme of homecoming in in the Odyssey makes the the way that this Ulysses feels at the beginning, um, his his barren crags, his aged wife, his boring son, um, his savage race. I mean, all of these are the things that he just couldn't wait to get back to. Right, yeah. He has a a weird attitude toward Ithaca in this poem. This Mm -hmm. this place that... I mean, there's the the wonderful scene in the Odyssey where he's on this beautiful island. I think it's Circe... I can't remember if it's Circe's or Calypso's, but he's he's on this beautiful island, and it says he's just sitting, staring at the sea, crying. Um, yeah, not because he 
not because he wants to be on sea, on the sea, but because he wants to be back in Ithaca. And to go back to Ithaca, and um, let me open the, the book, which I don't bother to have open. Um, to go back to the book and say that he is upset because I meet and dole unequal laws unto a savage race that hoard and sleep and feed and know me not, that that's a pretty big change from what we see of him in in the Odyssey. I mean, throughout the Odyssey, he's this force for civilization. Here he's a force for civilization, and he seems to prefer to be a barbarian. Yeah, and the, the it, it's it's hard to it's hard to read, especially uh, with the exception of suitors <laughs> in the Odyssey. Uh, it's it's hard to read the descriptions of Ithaca, especially in Book Two, and say this is a savage race that needs unequal laws meted and doled to it. On the you other know. hand, um, all the citizens of Ithaca are completely unwilling to do anything about the injustice in Odysseus's house. So it may be that that in refusing to purge his house of the suitors during his absence, they have revealed themselves to be more barbarous than they they should be. Perhaps. Um, I, maybe, maybe this is just me again. I'm not. I'm not a classicist, but in in reading, uh, I teach the Odyssey every semester, um, and maybe I'm not getting better at it. Maybe I'm just becoming more, <laughs> more narrow as I go. Um, but uh, the Ithaca that's presented, especially in those first couple of books, seems to be an Ithaca of grandfathers and grandsons. That the that the kind of the in between generation of fathers who would have been the men of action who headed to Troy, are are not there. Um, so that these these young men who are, um, Telemachus's age and a little bit older, they're just kind of ruling the roost with no kind of powerful generation above them to keep them in their place. And then the rest of the council in book two is just a bunch of old guys that they yell at. You know, it's it's a it's a weird, it's a it's a weirdly imbalanced culture. Yeah, it seems. And and Odysseus is the only person from his generation who actually makes it back. Right. So you know, daddy's daddy's back at the end of the Odyssey, and he's the only one. <laughs> Anything else that we want to say about about Homer's treatment of Odysseus, Nathan? Ah, uh, nothing really leaps to mind. I I think it's interesting though that that return from combat. I mean, I wonder, and I'm kind of jumping the gun on some some later stuff, but I mean, when hearing you guys discuss that, it makes me wonder whether this is a meditation more from a British imperial mind than it is from the text of Homer that you know these yeah. veterans coming back from far flung wars. Uh, return and find, you know, civilization, so to speak, uh, more barbarous because it lacks that military order than even the barbarism than that, that they saw out in the empire. I don't know. I'm, I'm, I'm spitballing at this point, but, uh, you know, that strikes me as a possible connection if we keep running the re- direction you guys are running. Well, let's, let's bring that one up again. Cause I want to, I want to move it in that direction. I think that's a good one to a good, a good rabbit to chase. All right. All right. I just wanted to say it now so I wouldn't forget it later. Well, I'll pitch you something else you like. Um, The scholarly footnotes say, 
the Tennyson's poem builds not only on Homer but also on Dante. So if you're playing bingo, there you go. Uh, in Canto 26 of Inferno, if I remember rightly, Dante and Virgil encounter Ulysses uh, on fire, <laughs> as one as one will be in Inferno. Um, what do you see in Tennyson's poem when we frame it with Dante's? Well, there in Canto 26, uh, Dante and Virgil are in the circle of the, or actually in the bolgia, the pocket, uh, mm. in, of the false counselors in the Malibulge, which is the eighth circle, uh, the sins of the fraudulent. It states pretty early in that canto that uh, Ulysses, who is paired with Diomedes, uh, who in my opinion is the best character in the Iliad, I like him much better than Achilles, um, they are there very specifically because of their false surrender at the walls of Troy. The Trojan horse, uh, as Dante tells the story, uh, is not a bit of clever strategy, uh, but instead it is a sin. It's a war crime, basically. So they are there in the, the circle of false counselors for that crime. However, that's not the story that Ulysses tells Don, uh, Virgil. It's Virgil who approaches them because he can speak Greek and you know, Virgil is concerned that they won't speak to Dante since Dante sounds too Italian. Um, but instead, <laughs> he tells the story that when he returns to Ithaca, and this is going to sound familiar if you know the poem, if you, if you know Tennyson's poem, he becomes bored with the peacetime life, with the life that's not journeying. So, in the last throes of old age, he gets his men together. Uh, they set sailing west. They go past the Rock of Gibraltar, the Pillars of Hercules, um, and they go on out uh, into the ocean. And as Dante tells the story, they journey far and wide uh, until they start to see a massive thing, solid thing, out on the horizon. Now, later on, uh, if you continue in the Commedia, as you should, you realize that what they saw was no other than Mount Purgatory, but when they see it, the seas suddenly become fierce. They capsize the boat. All the men drown, and thus he ends up in the circle of false counselors for something that he had done by Dante's account decades before. Uh, so, you know, when we bring that into Tennyson's poem, we see territory that's far more familiar. This is the version of Ulysses that doesn't like Ithaca, who won't remain there. Uh, and so... This sin isn't really what's at stake so much as the immediate occasion for death that brings him face to face with this sin. Um, and, you know, the. Again, you know, I'm, I'm trying to think of this, you know, in Dante's day uh, when you've got, you know, just a a great increase in I'll say commerce and trade and things like that as, you know, the turmoil in the east. Uh, with the rise of Turks and things like that and the invasions of Mongol hordes and so on and so forth have kind of thrown things into turmoil. You get really, you know, a, a swell in the power and the influence of Florence and some of the other Mediterranean city-states precisely because of these things. And, you know, as Dante imagines things, and I mean, I think you can see uh, hints of this as well in Boccaccio and Petrarch and people there in the same 14th century neighborhood, uh, you get a certain taste for the exotic uh, that kind of develops there. Uh, so, I mean, if, if you're looking for the real literary antecedent for Tennyson's reflections here, 
Uh, it's definitely a Dantean Ulysses rather than a Homeric uh, Odysseus. Um, David, I mean, you know, the what other, the, there's lots going on in any given passage of Dante. What other bits uh, do you see is worth noting here? Well, it makes me think, too, of uh, another another famous uh, early early 14th century uh, Italian, Marco Polo. Sure um, enough. That uh, he's, you know, kind of another, uh, an, an instance of that uh, far-traveled in the, in the exotic East Italian, um, you know, of, of, of the, you know, maybe, maybe uh, Dante knows some guys like that, guys with stories from, from far away. Um, this actually makes me think of another, um, another famous adventurer of story, Sinbad in the Arabian Nights. Okay. Entertainments. What about Sinbad in the movie Housecast? Um, I can't speak to that one. Uh, but in most of the ways that Sinbad uh, is the 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 adventurer, the Arabian adventurer is depicted um, in in our day. Uh, Sinbad is always Sinbad the sailor or Sinbad the ship captain, the adventurer. Um, but if you go read the Sinbad stories in uh, the Arabian Nights entertainments, um, Sinbad is a merchant. Who only goes to sea because he's lost all of his other money, and he's he's wagering everything on this last ditch, you know, trade expedition in order to make his fortune again. Um, he's never a sailor. He's never in charge, and he never wants adventures. Um, it's it's a it's a funny kind of mixed reception, kind of like kind of like Ulysses and Odysseus, um, but you know, Marco Polo where, where he isn't. Um, I, I wondered whether this whole last expedition was something of an evil council. Cause you know, this is where he's, where he's at in Inferno is the evil counselors because he has this speech in line one beginning in line one Oh six, um, shipmates who through a hundred thousand perils have reached the West do not deny to the brief remaining watch our senses stand experience of the world beyond the sun. Greeks, you were not born to live as brutes, but to press on toward manhood and recognition. With this brief exhortation, I made my crew so eager for the voyage, I could hardly have held them back from it when I was through. And then off they, off they go and sink. <laughs> that's yeah. That's interesting because he's promising them something impossible. Tennyson's right. Ulysses does the same, right? The famous yeah. line is to sail beyond the sunset. You can't do that. The horizon's always receding. So, I right. mean, I, I think you're right. I think it would be a form of false counsel, but really ridiculous false counsel. And and to the point where he clearly believes it himself. He's not mm -hmm. doing this. He's not doing this because he's cynically trying to draw them out to sea. His His ambitions have become so enormous and monstrous that he thinks mm -hmm. he can accomplish that which no man can accomplish. The other line Tennyson uses is uh, he wants to go beyond the utmost bound of human thought, which is a pretty yeah. big, pretty big flaw for <laughs> Greeks, I would say. Yeah, I mean his his evil counsel of others has has drifted into evil counsel for himself, which is all very Dantean. Mm -hmm. Yeah. The other yeah. thing I think Dante does, David, is to. Uh, 
to set at odds the notion of Ulysses' ambition and his responsibility. So a little earlier than the passage you were reading, and I'm using the Mark Musa translation. This is line 94. Not sweetness of a son, not reverence for an aging father, not the debt of love I owed Penelope to make her happy, could quench deep in myself the burning wish to know the world and have experience of all man's vices, of all human worth. So the, so the idea is he's really abandoning people who need him in order to go off on this foolish, ill-advised quest. And the Ulysses of Tennyson's poem does the same thing, although he does it much less regretfully because he hasn't died yet. He's not in hell yet, so he hasn't, he hasn't yet recognized the folly. But yeah. the, the, the stanza about Telemachus, I think, does just that. This is, this is my son, mine own Telemachus, to whom I leave the scepter in the isle, well-loved of me, discerning to fulfill this labor by slow prudence to make mild or rugged people, and through soft degrees subdue them to the useful and the good. Most blameless is he, centered in the sphere of common duties, decent not to fail in office of tenderness, and pay meet adoration to my household gods. He's doing the things his father is supposed to do. So Ulysses is capable of going off on this very irresponsible quest because of his son's responsibility, which is, I, I don't know enough about about ancient Greece to know whether that seems as monstrous to them as it would to somebody like Dante, because it's out of the normal order of things. Fathers mm -hmm. are supposed to be responsible. Yeah. And if anybody's supposed to be irresponsible, it's the son, but Odysseus has it exactly backwards. So I, I think the Odysseus of Tennyson's poem really is a monster in some ways, albeit a very appealing one. His, his kind of soft melancholy, makes it makes it easy to miss the the foolishness of what he's doing yeah and these three loves are the things that homer's odysseus will forsake immortality and on a paradise island for that's right yeah i mean and homer's odysseus says outright to circe yeah she's not as beautiful as you and her beauty fades but i don't care yeah Well, that leads us to the step that we skipped, the biography question. So, Michael, who is Alfred Lord Tennyson, and where in his life and career does this poem fall, and how does Tennyson relate this poem to his life? So, the poem's first published in 1842 in a um, very unhelpfully named uh, collection called Poems, <laughs> I think it's actually his second collection called Poems. I don't know. Um, yeah, I know it's his second collection. So Wait, it's how published. Do you, how do you know if you have like both of them? You're it's like, like Seal. You know the the singer Seal. All all of Seal's albums are called <laughs> Seal. Oh. oh, I didn't know that. Well, see now you know. Um, so it's published in 1842, but it's actually written in 1833, and that's a really important date for Tennyson, because in October 1833, his friend Arthur Hallam dies. Arthur Hallam is the, really the great figure in Tennyson's life. Um, they are contemporaries, more or less, but Tennyson sees Hallam as destined for greatness in a way that maybe even Tennyson himself is not. And when he dies, and I can't remember how he dies, does he drown? I can't. I don't actually remember the circumstances of that. He dies. <laughs> um, you know, in reading in, in memoriam, 
there's this long meditation on his his body being returned on a ship. So I think he died abroad, but I don't remember the circumstances of it. Well, the poem David mentions in memoriam is a a really long. I, I was going to say epic, but when we're talking about a poem called Ulysses, epic is a misleading word. It's a, it's a really long um, eulogy for Arthur Hallam, and it takes him 17 years. He starts writing it in 1833, and I don't think he finishes till 1850. So that's really his life's work in a lot of ways. And Ulysses, having been written shortly after the death of this guy, I, has to be infused with it. And Tennyson himself says as much. He says, Ulysses was written soon after Arthur Hallam's death and gave my feeling about the need of going forward and braving the struggle of life perhaps more simply than anything in in memoriam so i mean if, if you listen to him that's what this poem is doing it's an attempt to get him to move past his grief but if so he's, he really has picked an odd um an odd image because as we've said several times now ithaca is not odysseus's grief you know Od- ithaca is the the final location but he must mm-hmm. have seen he must have seen something that um, that gave him hope in this in this story. I should say um, Hallam was going to marry Tennyson's sister, and at the time everybody who knew Tennyson was convinced he was going to go crazy because he had three brothers who were crazy. I'm sure they were a old-fashioned, inbred, aristocratic British family, and he had three brothers who were going crazy, and and they assumed he would too. So in some ways, maybe we could say that Ulysses and In Memoriam A. H kept Tennyson sane. Huh. Right, he he was the one that his sister could rely on when he went crazy? Yeah, well, and the thing I read also said you have to imagine him having to take care of this household when he feels the way he does. And maybe you can see why Ulysses is so frustrated with turning barbarians into civilized men. Huh. I find that... Uh... This poem is about bravely getting past the things that brought you down. Um, I find that reading from Tennyson, especially Tennyson himself saying it, um, so interesting. And apparently, this is how everyone read this poem when it came out. Everyone because they like, knew the story, right? Pro- probably, yeah. They they probably you know knew knew something about about that side of it too. Um, but everyone was reading it as, as this is, you know, triumph of the human spirit and um, the bravery and the transcendent courage in the face of mortality and all the all these sorts of things, um, which is why I started with Homer and Dante. Because it's a really good speech. <laughs> right? It's a really good... Um, I mean, th- this is this is this is one of the best coach in the last act of the sports movie, underdog, take it to him in the final game speeches. I guess to, to me, it's such a sad poem. Yeah. To, to me, the whole premise of the poem is I'm gonna die. My life is going to come to nothing. What is, he says, death ends all. Death closes all. Yeah. And the only thing I have left is to go on this one adventure, which, by the way, can't possibly be as good as my old ones, right? Because he says, we are mm-hmm. not now that strength which in old days moved earth and heaven. That which we are, we are. So mm-hmm. I'm going to take what little I have left 
and throw it into this last experience. I think there's something very fatalistic and sad about that. Mm. So not not as encouraging in the in the wake of Arthur Hallam's death as maybe maybe what what what's the old Scottish term that they uh, they they would they would call this fay when someone is uh uh fated and therefore and therefore reckless yeah i I think that's i think that's accurate well it's interesting and i'm I'm gonna reveal some of my bad taste in film uh but this poem or at least the last six or seven lines features prominently in the uh, james bond film skyfall uh which is among other things an extended meditation on you know what good is james bond when he gets old (laughs) That's oh, hadn't even thought about that one. Is it in is it in Dead Poets Society? Oh, I feel like it might have been, but I, I I've seen unfortunately James Bond more recently than that one. <laughs> <laughs> I don't, I don't know if that's unfortunately. <laughs> Skyfall was pretty good. You know, as as new bonds as new bonds go. I thought. Oh sure sure. Well, let's turn to the the wider the the wider context from Tennyson to to the Victorians, and you already kind of took it in this direction, Nathan. Um, you you mentioned the 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 Victorian imperialist perspective. What what in this poem's views of of civilization or travel or or you know other topics would would strike you as Victorian and maybe not Homeric? Well, as I said before, I mean, the idea that is certainly prevalent in a lot of Victorian texts that adventure is something that is out in the provinces uh, rather than here in Britain uh, is written all over this thing. Um, You know, the barbarism of the sort of decadent um, urban society as opposed to the sort of purity of the, you know, Rousseau-flavored savages of the outlands uh, is going along here. Um, I, I think there's also, I mean, a good sense here that kind of like the, the, the well, I mean, kind of like the Victorian imagination would have it, uh, England is the old country, uh, and that, you know, if people are seeking to prove themselves, then the place to do that is not here in England, but elsewhere. Um, now, yeah. the other, the new you world. know, yeah, yeah, precisely, precisely. And, you know, in in Indochina and, you know, so on and so forth, right? Uh, but the other thing that, that struck me, and this is actually what I was thinking of before our, our previous conversation in this episode, uh, is that with the Victorian era, uh, you have this, oh, and I don't even know what to call it, uh, a strong sense that in poetic terms, what is best has passed. Uh, so, I mean, there's definitely an idolization of Shakespeare and Milton and Wordsworth and Coleridge and so on and so forth. And there's a strong anxiety uh, that the best of poetry has already happened. Uh, and, of course, I mean, you know, my reading here is, is just irrecoverably uh, stained and stinkified uh, by Harold Bloom. And I apologize for that, listeners. But, unfortunately, once you read him, he doesn't get out of your head. Um, but uh, there's a sense here that 
the golden age has passed and now uh, what lies before us, as Michael noted before, uh, is something that's going to be necessarily lesser. Um, so it's interesting. I mean, it, it, if you think about the Victorian era and the 1840s as, among many other things, situated between Wordsworth l lyrical ballads and T.S. Eliot's essay, Tradition and the Individual Talent, you know, this is the moment that is waiting for uh, the move towards recovery that you see with the modernists. Uh, you know, right now it's just a sense of, okay, is there anything else new to do? Uh, there's not the suspicion of novelty yet that you see with the turn of the 20th century. Um, one other thing, you know, as far as, as Victorians go, uh, is, as David noted and as we talked about earlier, uh, you get this sense of the decadence of the young more than the sort of uprightness and the potential of the young, you know. Uh, Telemachus is to be left behind, uh, and he's doing the offices, I mean, to be sure, of Odysseus, uh, but there's a strong sense that, you know, he doesn't really have the drive that Odysseus does, or maybe he would have, you know, insisted that he go instead. Uh, so, I mean, again, you know, that, that anxiety that, you know, there is no more world left to conquer, uh, you know, the fact that he is invoking this fated journey uh, and, you know, in literary society, certainly they would have all been aware of Dante's journey uh, or, you know, the journey that Dante narrates. Um, yeah, I mean, you know, that that sadness that that Michael was talking about, you know, uh, made weak by time and fate, but strong in will to strive to seek to find and not to yield. There's not really a sense there that they're going to conquer anything. Uh, it's just that as they are dying, they're not going to wave the white flag. Right. That's why. That's why I yeah. see it. It it would be it would be a very strange sports movie indeed. I mean, I could imagine it, but it would mm. be one where they worked their best and still lost. Oh, imagine it! Nothing. It's Rocky. Yeah, I suppose. I can't true. beat him. What I want to do is go the distance. <laughs> right, right. Just, just make it. Just make it through. Yeah. I, I Tennyson's got to be top five most melancholy poets of all time. Oh, to be sure, to be sure. I mean, well, I'm, I'm with Bloom on this. Yeah. I think almost all his work is coming to terms with the fact that the Victorians don't have romantic poets. <laughs> so so where I resist Bloom, or I, I'm actually suffering the anxiety of influence. Michael just runs with it. <laughs> He's like, sure. I'm, I'm not a genius, Nathan. <laughs> right. I just listen. I just listen for the voice of the spirit. Do what it tells uh. me to do. <laughs> nice. Callback. Excellent. So, when I when I when I was thinking about this question, I, w I was thinking of things like Kipling, um, and the role of travel in Kipling, the role of of uh, adventure, the adventure that's over there and not here. Um, that. It's that strikes me as a very uh, not that no other culture has ever felt this, but it, but a, a very Victorian sort of thing. Um, but uh, as I was reading this, uh, I was reminded of innumerable novels, most of them written in the early twentieth century, in which there is this this older Victorian, usually you know someone who'd who'd made their uh, 
made their fortune in the colonies, you know, mining in Australia or South Africa, or uh, they'd been they'd soldiered in India or something like that, and now uh, th they'd made their pile and come home, and now they're old, and their son is the accountant who manages the estate, and that deep dissatisfaction with accountant son. Um, there, there, there's something about that that uh, I know Tennyson is writing this as a young man, not an old man. Twenty-four, and writing, right? And writing that when the Victorian age is has still got most of its time in front of it, but still Whoa. it has this weird aged anxiety about it. Well, um, not not only that, David. I, what what year is Victoria? Uh, inaugurated is not the right word. Coronated, isn't it? Eighteen thirty-seven. Is that it? Is that when? I'm gonna look it up. Me too. <laughs> uh, yeah, eighteen thirty-seven. I thought it was eighteen thirty-seven. Right, so it's not even the Victorian age. It's not technically, and he's already nostalgic. Yeah. That's yeah. It's it's really really interesting. Maybe maybe that's the thing that makes Victorians so dang nostalgic. They're they just they started that way. <laughs> well, I mean, why well, you know, Elliot wrote Proof Rock when he was what in his twenties. Yeah. Yeah. the The line that I had remembered being in this poem is, uh, "Should the aged eagle spread its wings?" Which, as I read this poem, it occurred to me that's Elliot. I think that's from Ash Wednesday, not from. Not from Ulysses, but I, th there are yeah. certain t uh, parallels between Tennyson and Eliot. I mean, yeah. especially if you believe the people who say that much of the wasteland is about the death of Eliot's friend in World War One. But we've talked um, so much yeah. about Eliot on this show this year. Let's uh, <laughs> move on to something yes, else. <laughs> well, we are talking about old age, though. We've kind of segued into the next... Um, my next topic, and you you brought it up, Michael. So so you you can continue. Uh, how does this poem strike you as a treatment of aging and mortality? Is this is this just a young man fearing what he imagines old age to be, or is there something something more here? I I don't know that I can answer that question because I'm not old. Like and right. neither are you guys in the grand scheme of things, but I was really shocked to hear that Tennyson wrote this when he was twenty four because it feels mm -hmm. so much like um like somebody who's who's worn out and I think from my own outsider's position he has captured that fairly well as well as Proof Rock or any of the other books I think of when I think of treatments of old age King Lear I think that this this poem has certain things in common with Lear as well. Um, but I ultimately, I don't think I don't think anybody wants to hear from me about whether this is accurate or not. I think we need to uh, we need to ask uh, one of our uh, more venerable listeners to write in and tell us what you think, because I, I just I don't think I have a valuable position on that. Well, I mean, to take a look at what he does do, though, I mean, you know, whether we have something to compare it or not, uh, First of all, David, thank you for not pitching me this question. Michael, thank you for not <laughs> capitalizing on it the way I thought you would. But No, I went uh, out of my way know. to say you guys weren't old, in fact. 
Um, but it strikes me that you know this is an enti- almost entirely negative vision of old age. Uh, you don't get the the proverbial, as in the the biblical book of Proverbs, sense that um, you know that that gray hair or white hair, depending on what translation you're looking at, is a crown to be worn. Uh, you don't mm-hmm. get the sense yeah. that you know the elderly are somehow uh, contributors in a way that you know a lot of of older literature tends to do that, right? You know, uh, this Odysseus is not Nestor encouraging the young kings to fight well on the plains of Troy. Uh, this is someone who basically has, you know, has a past that looks something like a young man's life. And because there's nothing after the young man's life in this poem's imagination, you relive the old man's relive, pardon me, the young man's life by going out with what limited strength you have and trying to do it again and knowing that you're going to die as a result. So, you know, as far as as the content of the poem, uh, that's the vision of things, you know. Uh, So, I mean, even without having progressed beyond my own, uh, to score myself, um, you know, I can see that, you know, as far as the imagination of this poem goes, it doesn't really imagine much after Ulysses returns to Ithaca. Uh, it's basically a holding pattern, and the only thing left is to recur. Uh, you do it again. You go out once more, and this time you know you're going to die rather than worrying you're going to die, but that's what you do. Um there's something very contemporary about that, don't you think? Oh yes. gosh, yeah. Well, like I said, I mean, I yes, yes. Well, when, when David told us we were reading this, I immediately thought of that James Bond movie, and I mean, that's that's what that movie is. I mean, you know, it is the old spy who can't shoot straight anymore, who can't do as many pull-ups anymore, uh, who really can't do what he did when he was 30, having to, you know, basically take on, you know, a, a younger terrorist. And having to, you know, and I, I won't give any very specific spoilers, but, you know, to put his own life on the line where before he wouldn't have to because he's not as sharp or as strong as he used to be. So, yeah, I mean, it, it, it's very much a, it, it's interesting. You don't think of the 1840s as the cult of youth, but I mean, it's a kind of cult of youth kind of a poem. Well, and I think one of the things I think is brilliant is the way he ties that into fame, which is, of course, a major theme of of Homer's poems, for sure. But also, right. it just makes it more contemporary. He has this complaint early on that his subjects don't know him. These, these people for whom he's laboring to bring them civilization don't have any idea who he is. And then there's a wonderful line. It's uh, line 11. I am become a name. Which is very interesting, right? Because on the one mm-hmm. hand, it, it suggests that he has achieved an enduring fame. But on the other hand, it, it suggests a certain reduction. He He's not a person anymore. He's just a name. And and so maybe one of the reasons he's going back out there is to feel alive again, instead of, instead of feeling like somebody whose time has already passed and who's just entered into the record books. Yeah, I mean, it reminds me, and, and mercifully, I don't use a, lo- a whole lot of sports uh, references when I teach, uh, but every once in a while, I'll catch one of my colleagues, usually in chapel more than in the classroom, uh, making reference to the Michael Jordan of this or that, and I look around and realize <laughs> that, you know, of all the people in the, you know, 
uh, Swale Center, which is where we have our chapel services, you know, most of them might have been three years old when Michael Jordan won his last championship. Right. Sick Gloria Trans... What is it? Sick Transit Sick Gloria. Sick Transit Gloria Monday. Yeah. That's life. Or, you know, Ecclesiastes, all is vanity. There's something... There's something... Um, in this poem that makes me think of Ecclesiastes, but it's almost as if Ecclesiastes hadn't learned, if, if Kohelet had not learned his lesson and, 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 and actually thought that just doing more of that stuff that didn't work when he was young would be the thing that worked. This time I'll be happy. Yeah. <laughs> but the, but uh, is it really this time I'll be happy or I might as well do it again because there's nothing else to do, all is vanity? I mean, in other words, is it right. forgetting Kohelet? Either way, it's grim. <laughs> or is it Kohelet turned up to 11? Right. I mean, it makes me think of uh, the, the I am become a name. Um, and then later on he talks about maybe we'll see Achilles in the Happy Isles. Um, it's weird if this Which, is... Which, by the way, of... he knows he knows exactly what's happened to Achilles. He, he Yes. <laughs> he's solving the afterlife, and he's not happy. Right. Like... Uh, like the first line out of Odysseus's mouth, he's like, "Hey Achilles, you're super famous, right? Remember that time when you got to pick between a long life and fame, and you chose fame? You're super famous. It worked." And Achilles is like, "Yeah, being dead is terrible." It's, right. Doesn't he say something like, "Oh, it's something like he'd rather lick somebody's boots than and and still be alive." He'd rather be a farmer. Yep, that's what it is. Burn. <laughs> Yeah, it's like that. This this Odysseus though, this Ulysses, is in Achilles' hell. Right, he has fame, but from his perspective, he has no life, as if to breathe were life. You know, um, and he's stuck in it. Now, I I have this is this is my head canon for this movie. Uh, or this this poem, um, line. 44 there lies the port the vessel puffs her sail there gloom the dark broad seas my mariners souls that have toiled and wrought and thought with me that ever with frolic welcome took the thunder and and sunshine opposed free hearts free foreheads you and i are old how many old sailors does odysseus have with him in his old age huh in dante's version enough to go out again Right. In uh, in Homer's version, none. <laughs> I mean it's 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 one of those like okay, which which Odysseus is this? Which Ulysses is this? Because I because in one it's like all the old sailors go out for one last hurrah and probably drown. Or even sadder, the old man on the throne speaks to his ghosts. Hmm. Talk about going insane. Yeah. I had one student write a paper who argued that this was his friends coming to get him as he dies, so that his death becomes the last big voyage with his with with his friends returned around him. There's that an Ockerville River song like that. Hmm. That's probably the most positive spin that I can give to this last to 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 the poem um that's that's the one that i want this to be 
but uh, I, I'm afraid that it's either the old men go out for a last hurrah and drown, or the old man who talks to his ghosts. But it's it's interesting. I mean, we've we've hit on it that this poem is supremely depressing. But it's interesting because because <laughs> that last line in particular, I think, must be taken as much out of context as I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. Oh yes. To strive, to seek, to find, and not to yield. Yeah, well, the point here is, you're going to yield. <laughs> yeah. You know? You you may do it later rather than sooner, but death's going to get you. You're, well, you're, buying, you're buying your time from the eternal silence. That's, that's, the, that's what he calls it. And I think he's got to be quoting Pascal there. The eternal silence of these infinite spaces frightens me. Hmm. But uh, the, the point is, the eternal silence is going to win out. Well, and we are not now that strength which in old days moved earth and heaven that which we are we are one equal temper of heroic hearts made weak by time and fate but strong and wheel and will to strive to seek to find and not to yield and that sounds just like milton satan hmm yeah <laughs> like i'm I, I know i can't be the first one to come up with that and I probably heard it somewhere, and and it's you know like that resonance chamber we talked about in Gadamer echoing back in my head, but yeah, I mean I like I hear that as powerful, moving, satanic rhetoric. Hmm. Interesting. I mean, am I wrong? Oh, I mean, I, I, I guess Milton when guy. I when, yeah, I mean when I think of Milton Satan, I mean his rhetoric is always attempting to seize not fame necessarily but power um mm, so i okay. mean I, I in that respect I, I wouldn't have thought of it this way because frankly he doesn't seem all that concerned with what kinds of stories the demons will tell of him i mean he <laughs> he seems you know uniquely bent on annoying god <laughs> Right, so, I mean, right. without that relationship to God, it's hard for me to even imagine Milton Satan. But that said, if you take that variable out, uh, you know, as the Romantic poets do when they do, when they do their, you know, their minor sat satani, uh, I think that <laughs> works. Huh. If that paper doesn't exist, you should write it, Groves. Surely it does. I, I, I've, I know I can't be the person who came up with that. I can't can't possibly. That's it. Just have, have you ever had an idea that you were absolutely sure was a t-ball? <laughs> so even though you even though you hadn't read it somewhere, <laughs> I, I have I have two different sorts of ideas, David. One mm -hmm. that I'm convinced is absolutely original that turns out to be the standard reading, and one that I I can't believe anybody has never said before, but it turns out nobody has. Those are the only two. Those are the only two ways I read things. All right. <laughs> and you and you never know which one it was until you look. Well, I mean, again, if I if I think that it it's something new, it must not be. Mm. Yeah, and if you think that it's something old, then it almost will certainly be revolutionary. Or at least forgotten long enough that people think it's new. Right, if it's out of print, you can you can plagiarize from it, right? <laughs> I, I think that's how that works, right? Well, we have done the wine and cheese pairing uh, in these kinds of single text episodes before, so 
by golly, we'll do it again. Um, as we wrap this up, uh, what are some other texts that we might fruitfully pair with Ulysses? Well, one that, uh, e whoops, hold up, I was muted. There we go. One that immediately comes to mind is another story of growing old and, and coming back from war, uh, but from the Vietnam War, and that's uh, No Country for Old Men by Cormac McCarthy. Um, it, it strikes me that, you know, first of all, I mean, you know, this linkage we've been doing between the Victorians and the modernists is certainly there in the Yeats poem that it references. But in that poem, uh, the old characters, the the aged sheriff and, you know, his, his friend who uh, has become so decrepit that he can't even be in law enforcement anymore, have a sense that the world itself is departing them. Uh, so, I mean, you know, where Tennyson sees a world that has become so sedate uh, and so tame that there's no adventure left here anymore, in that novel the world is supposed to be getting sedate and tame because these old men have done their work, you know, uh, holding to the law and, you know, enforcing the law and, you know, keeping peace in the land. But then when these monsters come back from Vietnam, um, basically the country itself rises up to devour them and they can't keep up with it. Uh, so, I mean, it's interesting. I mean, the, I, neither one of them is a very happy vision of getting old. Uh, and, and there are happy visions of getting old, I should note. Uh, you know, again, you have to go older than the 19th century to see them, but they're there. Uh, but I mean, these are two very different and very differently unhappy visions of what it means to become old. So I think that's what I'd pair with it. Michael, how about you? I'd put it in a middle ground between the actual Odyssey, which is all about wanting to find your way home, and a certain strain of American literature that is all about escaping home uh, any way possible. Frederick R. Carl calls this uh, spatiality. It's the term I have used for it. Um, it it's, you know, you probably see it most clearly in, in Huck Finn. Uh, Huck escapes down the river in order to avoid being civilized. But it's also there in Washington Irving's uh, uh Rip Van Winkle, it's there in John Updike's Rabbit Run, Kerouac's On the Road, all sorts of all sorts of texts like that, which are all about growing dissatisfied and claustrophobic uh, at home. So I, I think I think Ulysses splits the difference between those things pretty nicely. And I'm gonna pitch, and no one's gonna be surprised. Beowulf, uh, the two images of old age that you get in that poem are old King Hrothgar who is wise with many winters um, who's been dealt a lot of pain in life uh, but has learned from it and can actually preach the text of his own life um, to the moral good of, of later generations um, that's a, kind of a, a positive depiction of old life old age in, in Beowulf but then at the end of the poem, you have Beowulf himself, who seems to have not learned how to be old, <laughs> uh, who decides when a dragon comes that he's just going to keep being the same old Beowulf. And in fact, the, the, the whole way there, um, he keeps telling stories about fights he had in his youth. But as he goes on to his last fight, um, 
you know, I, I do think that there's something something distinctive of 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 Tennyson's age and of our age in that discon- discontentment in Ulysses, but um, even even in some very old text, you can find old men who wish they were still just the young man doing the young man things. Well, David, since you didn't go here, I want to go one more place, and that is the closing of The Return of the King by Tolkien, because I, I oh, want to hear yeah. you talk about that, because in a very literal sense, Frodo takes a journey west across the sea at the end of that novel. Uh, but, I mean, it seems to be because his soul has become so scarred that he can't be in the Shire anymore. So, I mean, mm-hmm. it, it, talk to me, talk to our listeners about how those two relate to each other. The uh, th- this this is this is inter- this is interesting because uh, I I don't know that Tolkien had this language for it, but it's something that I've picked up from a friend of mine, um, Eugene Cuevas. Um, it's it's related to PTSD. It's something called moral injury. I don't know if that's quite exactly what what Frodo um, has endured, but. Uh, that, that Frodo has been through experiences that make it literally impossible for him to go back and reintegrate into life as he knew it. Um, he can go through the motions, but the side of reality that he's seen um, makes, makes that, com- that return to the comfort of home as impossible as a, refer- as a return to the comfort of the womb. Um, and... Uh, from from what I've heard, that that experience is is a kind of soldier experience, often. Um, so that maybe so that so that Tolkien, in that in that end uh, to the Return of the King, um, in in some of the readings is is said to be meditating on um, what it is like to be a soldier returned home, unable to unable to fit back in, um, not not in a no country for old men kind of way um but uh in in uh, a, a kind of scarring way it's because of his wound right in return of the king he gets stabbed by a ring wraith and he talks about how the wound continues to hurt him um and he still feels uh he he never entirely recovers from ha- from possessing the ring um, and the only place where he will have comfort is is across the sea. Yeah. Well, dear listeners, uh, we hope that we haven't totally ruined Tennyson's Ulysses for you, um, but at the same time uh, invited you to consider this poem and other poems um, from many different perspectives in many different ways. Uh, to keep turning it and turning it and turning it like a kaleidoscope to see the images that, that really are there um, as you keep tilting it and framing it um, with different uh, with different ideas. Well, what do we have up for next week, guys? Uh, next week we'll be talking about Kazuo Ishiguro's uh, novel The Remains of the Day. We we try to do an episode on the Nobel winner each year. Ishiguro won it this year, and so we're reading The Remains of the Day. Also about an old man reflecting on life. Uh, that's true, and, and almost as melancholy as Ulysses, so we're really slouching into Bethlehem 
this Christmas. <laughs> Slouching towards Bethlehem. I know, I screwed it up. I'm sorry. Yeah, sliding into third. Sliding into third is what you were thinking of earlier. <laughs> Excellent. Well, dear listeners, if you have any comments on Tennyson or Homer or Dante or, oh, heck, anybody we've mentioned this episode, please send them in to thechristianhumanist at gmail.com. You can post them on our Facebook wall and like us on Facebook. You can also post them in the comments uh, to the show notes for this episode when they post on our blog, christianhumanist.org. Um, if you get us through iTunes, we like uh, we, we crave good ratings. People help find us that way. In the meanwhile, I'm David Grubbs on behalf of Michael Farmer and Nathan Gilmore wishing you all the grandest of weeks. Christian Humanist podcast is part of the Christian Humanist Radio Network. Our press liaison, uh, liaison is Kristen Philippic. Our editor is Ellen Peterson. And I leave you with words of Martin Luther. Let your sin be strong. Let your faith be stronger.